This podcast is recorded on stolen and unceded Aboriginal land. We acknowledge the First Nations and elders of this country and we join their calls for justice. Esther, have you heard that we are living in a state that has been consumed by the Marxist takeover of Anastasia Palaszczuk? Great news. I haven't actually heard that. That does sound like great news. <laughs> it does sound like great news. Well, not according to this Gold Coast counsellor. This is in the Courier-Mail. Gold Coast counsellor accuses Anastasia Palaszczuk's state government of, quote, Marxist takeover <laughs> of local government after plans for a Gold Coast community forum were established. Community <laughs> forum. I mean, it's already sounding pretty sinister, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, how does it fit in the... Um, the spectrum, right, where socialism is when the government does stuff, communism mm-hmm. is when the government does a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Is Marxism just having a government? Mm, the government does all the stuff because the big bad government and not the nice little local councils, even though you want to be part of the big bad government, this guy, um, he doesn't like it doing too much stuff until he's in it and then it'll be good to do stuff. So this councillor has come out and said this is a Marxist takeover of local government after he's heard about a community forum in his area, in the Gold Coast, because Herman Vorster, Herman Vorster is the councillor. First of all, okay, have you ever heard of this guy before? Because I hadn't. No, I haven't. No. I I don't know who this, this man is. Um, apparently he plans to potentially... So he's a former young LNP president who has been touted to replace Burley MP Michael Hart. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. So this is a state MP in Queensland Parliament. So I guess maybe he must be retiring or something and this guy might be replacing him. Um, So that'd be fun to see him kind of moving up the ranks. So this is his PR strategy. Yeah, I guess he's just starting early, just, you know, building his brand. You love to see it. <laughs> you love to see it. That's right. He's hustling. <laughs> so the, the Premier said there's going to be this community forum. It's literally just a community forum. I think they're doing this. The state government has organised all these forums across the state to be like, we care about community and getting, you know, regional planning and that sort of thing. Um, it'll bring together residents, stakeholders and Queensland government representatives to identify opportunities to grow the local economy and to respond to emerging priorities. But... <laughs> Herman Vorster says it will create an unelected, quote, shadow council and has called on local councils throughout Queensland to fight the move, warning it sets an undesirable precedent. Should we be afraid? I'm afraid already. (laughs) (laughs) What are you afraid of? I definitely don't want Anastasia Palaszczuk to be listening to me and what I want in the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. Yeah, it's it's pretty scary stuff. <laughs> anyway, Mr. Vorster has put forward a motion calling on council to, quote, push back against the Marxist takeover of local government here in Queensland. But we're not going to fucking let that happen, are we? Because you and I, Esther, are working <laughs> on a Marxist takeover of local government right here in Mianjin, Brisbane. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> If you want the dole for life, free marijuana, vote Greens. Of course, the Greens, being the Greens, like to cut their nose off to spite their face. And even though they agree with things, they, they tend not to sign off on them. We're stuck with the hosts of Chapo Shithouse podcast. This is, this is, this is a serious danger to Australia. listeners to Serious Danger, the podcast about green politics in Australia. This is not an official Greens Party podcast. It's made possible with the help of the Green Institute and produced by Michael the Griff Griffin. And this week on the pod, something different. Tom is away. He is living it up in Europe like a, you know, inner city latte sipping lefty. And so I had to replace him with a much better alternative, Esther Vale. (laughs) Welcome, Esther. <laughs> hey, Emerald. Long-time listener, first-time co-host. Yeah, exactly. It's been a long time coming, I feel. Um, Esther, so Esther's a writer. She's a filmmaker, an activist from Queensland, and she was also the campaign manager for the Winning Ryan campaign in 2022. Also, she's my friend and she's funny, and so why not have her on the show? <laughs> Um, This week, we will be talking about Esther's political journey. We'll be talking about transphobia and quote unquote free speech within the Greens. And then just a quick check in on Labor losing their minds over housing. Uh, Before we get into that really quickly, thank you. Shout out to our new patrons. We have Hammurabi, Thomas, Riley, Matthew Olson, um, the Ballad of 
Tom Bollard. I'm really sad that Tom's not here to see that. I hope he knows that the Ballad of Tom Bollard, whatever that is, is now a patron. Thank you. Um, Doug Kay and Jordana Colvin. If you sign up to become a patron, it's just three bucks a month and that's how we pay Mike and keep the show going. Uh, and you get access to bonus content. We just put out a Q&A episode that we recorded before Tom went away where we answered listener questions. People sent in cute little audio files. It's very sweet. We talked about like the Writers, writers Guild strikes. Um, we talked about favorite Arnott's biscuits, music recommendations, all this and more. It's good. So if you can, um, chuck us three bucks a month and go listen to cool content like that. exact moment do you remember do you know when we met exactly <laughs> i don't know when the first time would have been but um i remember on michaela's campaign last time um i was helping out with filming a video or two and you were there sort of directing it and um oh, yeah. keeping michaela to script yeah this is so michaela Sargent, who ran in the last brisbane city council elections back in 2020 um that was a campaign I was the the campaign manager on that because it was kind of in our little patch on the west side. I remember you, like, I don't, yeah, I don't know if I remember the exact first time that I saw you come along as a volunteer, but I just know you came along um, with another volunteer, Annabelle, and we were just extremely excited to have these two, like, cool young people on the campaign, and you were just the most diligent data entry volunteer. Because I think that that's what you you started at, at very first. You were mostly just doing data entry, right? Yep. I was uh, terrified by the prospect of door knocking. Uh, mm. I thought, oh, well, this is sort of something I can do. Um, I'm definitely not going to be one of those people that goes out there and talks to random people on their door. I'm way no, too autistic God, no. for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, how, that's how I felt at the time. Um, and then after the council campaign... Um, and we were going into Michael's campaign, his re-election campaign in 2020. I just kept doing data entry for a long time. Mm. And then at one point I just sort of decided, look, I'll give it a go. Um, yeah. And that's kind of the thing about data entry is when you're reading like the notes from people door knocking, that can help to just make it seem really simple and straightforward. And it's like, oh, these are not like scary conversations that people are mm. having Lots of the time people don't have any major issues. They just want good local stuff and a fairer life for everyone. So I gave it a shot mm. and then got addicted. I did like, yeah. um, I think it was like six door knocks in the first five days. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> yeah, I know because I think like we probably we would have been like, come to a door knock, come to a door knock, come to a door knock. <laughs> and I feel like there, was, there were you and also maybe around a similar time, Eloise, another volunteer in the area had started. And I think similarly was like pretty introverted and was keen to just, you know, come along and chill out in the office and enter notes from other people who'd been out door knocking. But then eventually finally decided, okay, I'm going to take the leap and go for a door knock. And since then, and then was just at every single door knock, like you get, get the rush. Like, I mean, do you remember kind of those first conversations that you had where you felt like you had swung a vote? I'm not sure exactly. Um, I think that's the, that's the thing about door knocking is you don't always get the sense that it's making a difference, but mm. I mean, it obviously does make a difference. Yeah. Um, we see it when we go out there and talk to people again and again and they, like, definitely have changed their minds over time. Mm. Yeah, I think that's the thing. It's like, you know, you, you obviously you can't know for sure there's a chance that, as people say, someone's just being nice to you on the door. But I do think there are those moments certainly that 
I've had and I feel like everyone that I speak to about door knocking has had where you you kind of just see like a little something change, you know, a little glimmer in their eye. You see them, you know, maybe they're like their body language changes or just the, the tone after they might come into the conversation as you do when someone knocks on your door kind of hesitant and like not that keen to talk and then you mention a policy or you connect with them about something that they have mentioned is important to them and they are just like, oh, interesting. And you can see like the wheels turning and you're like, okay, this is, I love this and I want to do this all the time. Yeah, I remember very early on in the federal campaign, um, I was knocking on doors in Chapel Hill, which is mm-hmm. just outside our kind of core inner west Maywa area with lots of Greens voters. And um, I was speaking to an older gentleman and, you know, he was struggling with, um, the aged pension not being high enough and having difficulties with accessing it and that sort of thing. And I'm coming there as like a 25-year-old who um, has dealt with like youth allowance and that sort of thing. Mm. And um, I think that kind of opened my eyes to the possibility that maybe in this like LNP-held seat where there are lots yeah. of these um, kind of more conservative voters that we can actually change lots of minds at scale. Yeah. Well, that's, I kind of wanted to talk to you about, cause I mean, well, over the years, or God, I guess it hasn't been years, but over the time that we've been doing this <laughs> podcast, um, occasionally when we've asked people what they want us to talk about, a lot of people have said like, we would love to hear from, you know, some of the campaigners and the volunteers on the ground, particularly in Brisbane and in Queensland and just, yeah, like how you do it. And I think it's particularly interesting to talk about your perspective as someone who has campaigned so much in Brisbane's inner West because it has that character of being, like for anyone who doesn't know, it's traditionally blue ribbon liberal area, LNP area, and places that, you know, they obviously never thought that they would lose, let alone lose to the fucking Marxist Greens. Um, And yet we have and it's, I mean, what do you think it is about like, how have we been able to pull people from apparently so far into that kind of conservative LNP voting pattern over to what is undeniably like a very radical Greens movement? There are just so many people that vote based on inertia um, and if it's always been a liberal seat and your parents vote liberals and tell you to always vote liberals, then, you know, that, that creates this trend and it's not necessarily because people have particularly conservative views. Um, and when mm. they hear a platform from the Greens that just talks about the everyday stuff, um, like everyone is concerned about, um, you know, the cost of living, is concerned about yeah. housing, climate change, that sort of thing. Um, they just need to see that plan as a cohesive thing that one party is putting forward um, and actually believes that we can win it. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. Yes, it's obviously like building that belief that, you know, winning is possible, is fundamental. And even because I, I think that some people do think, well, you go into an area like Chapel Hill or Fig Tree Pocket, which is another really wealthy area in um, Brisbane's inner west. And because those people pr- probably like they might stand, stand to lose something from the Greens platform. Um, but the people who only have things to lose from the Greens platform, that is such a tiny, tiny, tiny proportion or who fund- even who fundamentally have things to lose from the platform. That is like a handful of people in the country, you know, and it's not actually that we're trying to sell a proposal for a small group of people to a big group of people. It's actually something for the, you know, the 99% quite literally. And even someone who is uh, relatively and quite fundamentally privileged and, and wealthy living in, in the city, they still are affected because of the way the system works by, you know, um, underfunded services. Probably their kids will struggle to find work or, or a house or whatever it is will be affected by climate change, of course, as well, because an even tinier group of the, the very upper echelons, the most wealthy individuals and corporations in our society are um, creating those circumstances. So, yeah, like I think it is possible to connect with them on that. Absolutely. I I mean, what do you think then about sometimes there is an argument that the 
these LNP held seats are the only ones that the Greens should target and that we shouldn't go after Labor seats. Obviously, we've spoken about this on Serious Danger before. We think that that is simply nonsense. Um, (laughs) But what do you kind of like, yeah, how do you respond when people say that, when they're like, oh, it's okay to do it where where it's just a Liberal seat and not, not Labor though, that's just a bridge too far? I think we should put lots of effort into campaigning where we have volunteers who are excited about campaigning and... You know, if they're people that are backing a progressive vision, that'll happen in a lot of Labor seats as well as Liberal seats. Mm. So I think we should just campaign where people want to campaign and back the uh, areas where we have the most chance of succeeding and winning that power and getting our platform forward. Yeah, it's not, I mean, and it comes back to that idea that what Labor owns a seat, it's like, no, you're, this is how politics is meant to work, that the people are meant to back, have an opportunity to back policies that they want and a movement that reflects them and their values. Um, and if that's the Greens, then that's the Greens. <laughs> like, go cry about it or get better fucking policies, you know? Yeah. Meanwhile, all those Labor voters are feeling concerned that Labor is moving further and further to the right and looking just like the Liberals on way too many key policies. Like, why should those voters, you know, continue to support that party when there is a campaign that is exciting, that is putting forward um, ideas that they agree with Mm. that is there. Yeah. Yeah. I think like we have definitely seen Labor, particularly in the inner West, there's been a phenomenon of of Labor's vote just collapsing. Um, And meanwhile, the Greens are really that growing dominant force that's been able to to challenge and beat the Liberals, including I, I think, you know, 2017 was when we won Maywa and that was the first Greens MP elected to Queensland Parliament. Um, and then a few years later was that, you know, the first, the council campaigns that um, where Michaela ran that you and I were both working on and we didn't win, but we got a massive swing. You know, I don't think anyone expected to to win in that, in that ward. Um, and then two, yeah, two years later, the federal <laughs> election again, no one really expected, I think, for the Greens to win the seat of Ryan, kind of a blue ribbon liberal seat, and we fucking did. You you managed that you managed that campaign. Do you like was there a moment or when did you start to think that we could win that? I think very early on, um, we sort of thought, oh, there's the the possibility. And you know, you get in and you crunch the numbers and you do all your amateur sophology um, mm. and you work out what the potential path to victory is. And, you know, you're always going to put in assumptions, whether they're small assumptions like the preference flows are going to remain the same. Yeah. There might be assumptions like, look, after we won so many votes in council and state, um, especially in these core areas, like getting Michael re-elected, you know, if some of that vote continues and then we can win a little bit more on top of that. How many conversations do we need? How many votes do we need to swing to potentially win the seat? And we kind of worked out that, look, it's possible, you know, if we build a campaign that is the size that we wanted to build it, um, we might just be able to make it. I never believed that it was going to happen. Um, I've heard okay, a few people right. were sort of saying like two weeks before, you know, once pre-poll started, um, you could just sense on the ground that the Greens were going to win and everything changed. But I didn't think we had it in the bag at all. Yeah, I, yeah, I was such a pessimist. Like, <laughs> if we were to do it, we might be just like a hundred votes over. It'd be a repeat of Michael in 2017, mm. just 78 votes. Yeah. Um, but we, we did make it with a little bit of a margin, um, which was pretty crazy. Yeah. And it was the first one called. I remember that was the first one on election night that I got a text from someone and it was so early in the night and they were basically like, I think we've won Ryan. And I was like, what the fuck do you mean? I'm like, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. Um, and that's kind of how the night went from there. <laughs> it was, it, that was just an insane night, like the most insane night of <laughs> many people's lives, but definitely yeah. mine. Um, <laughs> we were um, heading back from uh, the last booth of election day. 
Um, I was with Libby up in the Mitchelton booth and we won that booth <laughs> um, <laughs> way outside of Green's Heartland. Um, yeah. We, we were there. Libby was picked up by her husband to go home and get ready before the party. Mm. Um, and I was heading over to um, the Griffith office where a bunch of us were gathering to get the scrutineer um, data coming in. Yeah. And as I was driving, I get a call from one of the scrutineers who'd been um, at the pre-poll count, um, which yeah. when so many of the votes were coming through pre-poll, like that was kind of the most significant factor is Because we don't do usually pre-poll. do well in pre-poll, yeah. Yeah, especially when there are these big pre-poll centres that are like not in our key areas. Yeah. Um, so all the way out in Bell Bowery and the Gap. And this volunteer was like, I think Libby's won because I'm just like <laughs> looking at the size of the piles yeah. of these votes and I was just like screaming while I was driving, <laughs> um, you know, at the limit uh, to get to the office. And then when I got there, I just like collapsed on the ground. Um, yeah. yeah. And then the results just kept coming in, coming in and, <laughs> kind of backing that up where it was like every every brief that came in was like, oh, shit, I think we can win. <laughs> it's crazy. I, I know that there are, I mean, there are some very cute photos from that night, but there are one or two of you hugging Libby and just like sobbing and so happy, which I'm going to get you to send me so we can post it on the Serious Danger Instagram. But everyone can see Esther just being like the happiest campaign manager in the world. <laughs> Uh, when, I, when I turned up at the party, um, it was just in time because we were waiting on those booth results to come in and we didn't get the last ones in and we're like, shit, we've got to leave, otherwise we'll miss the speeches. And so mm. we arrived at the hotel and I see on the TV and it's Amy McMahon introducing Libby uh, and mm. Libby's about to give her speech and yeah. we didn't know what was going to happen. Um, so we run upstairs and I just stand there. I see Libby on stage. I put my hands <laughs> over my heart and I just started sobbing. I remember. I know. Oh. I was absolutely un- uncontrolled. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then as Libby's speaking on the TV behind her is mm. Anthony Green pulling up Ryan like <laughs> 53% or something and everyone in the room just went wild. It was yeah, yeah, absolutely phenomenal. What a moment. Yeah, very cute. And and obviously there have been many, you know, takes in the wake of 2022 federal election and what it all means. One of the ones that still comes back, I think, is like identifying Libby and the Ryan campaign as a would-be Teal campaign. And there's this idea that if the Teals had run in Queensland, for example, maybe the Greens wouldn't have won. Maybe they were just picking up that kind of latent teal vote that um saw those other independents elected across the country i'm i mean what do you like what do you think about that of libby kind of as a stand-in teal rather than a green i think libby focused on the same sort of like universal wealth redistributive policies that you know we're championing across the country um Mm. and that's not something that the teals we're talking about you know we were saying true in ryan just as much as everywhere else like tax billionaires to fund dental and mental health into medicare like just yeah, the that's absolute not teal basic politics. stuff that's greens baby <laughs> yeah what what we were saying on the booths was dental into medicare vote one greens like that was the mm-hmm. same across queensland probably across the whole country yeah yeah i i, I think like some of the similar kind of factors like talking a bit about integrity and corruption. Um, We definitely did, but it wasn't as much of a theme as the overall Greens message that included, you know, taxing billionaires and big corporations. Yeah, yeah, so true. I mean, what do you think? um, So we have our council elections are in March next year and then we have our state elections. We have fixed terms now um, in October there's some speculation that there could be a federal election next year. I'm a, I'm a skeptic. I don't think there'll be a federal election next year. I mean, as we'll get into later, maybe even before then, who <laughs> fucking knows? Um, but do you have pre- predictions for for Greensland in the coming year or so? Like whether we'll continue to grow or whether we, you know, uh, have are a bit too big for our boots? What do you think? I think it's um, it's definitely going to be difficult to keep 
growing at the rate that we might want to grow. Um, yeah. But I definitely think we should be able to pick up a few council seats and at least one or two state seats. How many? <laughs> What's my prediction? I, I yeah. think we, we should be able to get at least three council seats. Like on top of the one that, and on top of the Gabba? On top of the Gabba, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Like I said, like I, we were talking about this and I think I was like, I'm always just pessimistic because I don't want to deal with the disappointment if and when we don't win. So I am totally prepared for us not to win, but I fully just, I really don't know. Like we are certainly within, you are in with a shot for so many council campaigns. Um, I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens just with like the citywide campaign with this idea of the Greens and, you know, kind of owning Brisbane. We own all of those inner city um, federal seats. And so, yeah, how does that actually reflect? How does that translate into the council election? I think will be very interesting to see. This is not for the men. This is for the women. Now, on to more fun, you know, just some light greens transphobia for your for your weekend. <laughs> um, I I hadn't followed this super closely. I'd kind of seen murmurings on on Twitter, but as I understand it, basically what's happened this week is that someone leaked a document that was prepared by members of the Victorian Greens from a, quote, gathering in Docklands, which I guess is a place in Victoria. I don't know what you people do down there. Um, <laughs> on the 23rd of July, it's Emerald's called the Green Dock- Moon. <laughs> yeah, I don't understand other states. Ne- you know, never been. What's don't- a Melbourne? <laughs> Melbourne? <laughs> I don't understand. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> the So they've called it the Docklands Declaration. Um, it asks Greens members and specifically elected representatives to pledge commitment to a set of principles that are purportedly around the freedom to challenge and discuss party policies and decisions without members publicly denouncing or, quote, abusing dissenters. Oh, that sounds very reasonable. It sounds, yeah, it sounds very reasonable, right? Like, and I want to go through the document and and even kind of have a discussion around, you know, that idea of, I guess, no holds barred, um, quote, free speech and discussion without limits within the party. But first, perhaps for anyone who is not a complete hack, there is some important (laughs) context behind, you know, who prepared this document and who is involved with the Docklands Declaration who do you know? Do we know exactly who prepared it, or is it is it a mystery? I think uh, they they have tried to um, be anonymous about it, but mm. it's the same usual people who have been in the media multiple times about this transphobia nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like Rowan Leppert, who's a councillor, I think, in Melbourne. Linda Gale, who was the was she the convener and then got booted from the position for being or it wasn't for being transphobic was it it was there was some sort of bureaucratic like issue with her her election but you know i think that it certainly there was a backdrop to that of her basically um being transphobic and this is the yeah like their political ideology is quite turfy specifically it is people who say that you know in order to um, defend women's rights and feminism, that somehow necessarily entails questioning whether trans women are women and should be uh, included in the feminist movement and included in women's spaces um, and and all of that, <sighs> which we've talked about on the podcast and, like, we're not, I think, we're just not even going to, we, like, if you want, you can go back and listen to another episode where we <laughs> talk about why turfy ideology doesn't make sense uh, and it just doesn't. Um, But 
this has been going on particularly in the Victorian Greens. They have a turf problem, clearly, and these members, you know, are really relentless with pushing this idea that this is something, this is you know, a pressing thing that needs to be discussed within the Greens for some reason. How does that then feel as a very involved trans Greens member to see this shit? Yeah, it's it's pretty upsetting um, and coming from the context of being in the Queensland party where, um, mm. you know, it has just always felt very welcoming. I haven't, you know, felt questioned for a second that um, I shouldn't have just as much opportunity as anyone else to participate in the party. Um, but I know, you know, Victorian Greens members who are, you know, feeling really, really personally affected by this. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I've always, like, and I've always found it to be, a huge strength of our movement that I think we've pretty deliberately made it a space that's clearly welcoming for trans people and queer people. And particularly on the West side, like my experience in 2020 with that council campaign and then the Maywa campaign after that, um, we deliberately, like it, it ended up being a very queer campaign and there were a lot of young trans people involved in that campaign because it was just clear that it was a space that like we wanted you know, we wanted queer people there. We wanted trans people there. And you then, you know, went on to fucking win us more. <laughs> and so that's why I often, I often think, you know, these fucking members who, what have you done for the movement when like <laughs> our movement is built on the backs of fucking trans people <laughs> who are doing way more than you are. So honestly, shut the fuck up and get to winning, first of all. <laughs> but that's just, that's just my personal opinion. Um, yeah, the, okay. In terms of who this came from, I saw that there, there's a Twitter account, um, Twinks for Greens, which <laughs> I only just realized that's the handle. I didn't even notice that before. Um, Twinks for Greens on Twitter was tweeting about this. They pointed out that I think when you try and log into the Gmail from which this declaration came out, so it was sent out to members from Greens for Good Governments at gmail.com, which I believe has been around for a while around this, this turf ideology and wanting to be able to discuss um, anti-trans ideas within the party. There's like a Twitter account, Greens for Good Governments. Then there's also, there's like Greens, Greens for No Debate, Greens for No No Debate, Debate. I, it's very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's against no debate. Greens and against, against no debate. Against no against, debate. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so Greens for Good Governments at gmail.com, when you try and sign into that, it says, we'll, we'll send a code to your phone number, which happens to have the same last three digits as Councillor Rowan Leppert. Um, coincidence? Who can say? Alleged? I don't know. I would, <laughs> I would never speculate. Um, I would never speculate like at Twinks for Greens has that potentially this is run by Rowan Leppert, the same person who is always out there in the media talking about how you know, effectively, well, maybe we should just ask, maybe trans women aren't women and I should be allowed to say that. And you're undemocratic if you don't let me say that. So they say that this statement is a, quote, genuine expression of grassroots participatory democracy. It's one of the pillars, guys. It's one of the pillars. I thought we could read it. I actually think it makes sense to kind of read it backwards because it's got like a preamble, it's got the principles, and then it says this pledge where it's like we want to defend the principles. So the pledge says, we pledge steadfastly to uphold these principles and to be vigilant in their defence. And we call on all members, particularly state councillors, members who hold public office and candidates for these positions to join with us in making this pledge. So the principles, I don't know if you want to read this whole thing, but subject to the constitution of the party, party membership and all party officers are open to any person who agrees to pursue the party's purposes, even though they may disagree with one or more of its policies. I don't think anyone... Is disagreeing with that? Sure, that's fine. Members are free within the party to discuss, disagree with, and propose the making or changing of any party policy or decision. Members do not need permission from anyone to do these things, nor do they need any particular identity. What are they talking about here? I don't know. <laughs> Members are united by their support for the party's purposes. They resolve their differences by working together, not by abusing party processes or publicly denouncing dissenters. Um, okay. Members who hold public office or a party office have a particular responsibility not to abuse the privileged position that the members have seen fit to grant them. 
they must not. And by that, by the way, they don't mean to, you know, show solidarity with um, trans people. This is, as I understand it, a direct reference to the fact that one of the people who was involved in um, having Linda Gale's election as convener challenged was an elected rep in Victoria. So clearly they're just mad about that. But anyway, the principles finished. They must not conceal the truth from members, use their influence to silence dissent or incite attacks on other members. First of all, yeah, this is just like one big subtweet, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's, you know, there, yeah. there's definitely some missing context there. Yeah. I think that's the thing because you can you can put this up and be like, this all sounds kind of reasonable, I guess. If I had no context, I would be like, why Why are we talking about the need to be able to challenge party policies and decisions and not conceal the truth or incite attacks on other members? And it's that, you know, the insidiousness of these kind of dog whistle messages where it is, it's, it's meant for a particular audience who understand the context here and understand that this is fundamentally coming from people who have been challenged for their views that we you know, need to have a debate about trans people's rights to exist and that they don't like that they were challenged and they don't think that they should be challenged. Um, concerningly, a bunch of people who've signed onto this, actually, it looks like there are a bunch of counsellors. I don't know who the fuck these people are. Like, again, I just, I'm like, just go do your job. It, it's wild when you um, look at some of the other states, um, like New South Wales and Victoria, that just have tons and tons of Greens counsellors. And up here yeah. in Queensland, we've just got the one. Got one, yeah. I mean, obviously, yes, it is a very different, it's a different beast in Queensland, but it's so weird to think there are all these random little Greens councillors across the country that I don't even know about. But anyway, I feel like being a councillor in other states, it's just like a hobby. It's not a job. They don't get paid proper wages, do they? I think it differs across Queensland as well. Um, well, true. Where some of them are um, unpaid, some are like part-time and mm. it's fairly rare to have the ones like we have in Brisbane City Council that are yeah. like full-time and compensated extremely generously. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just briefly, I wanted to also pull out then from the preamble to this uh, declaration, it refers to like the founders of the Greens. It says Bob Brown and Christine Milne's work expanded what was considered possible in Australian politics, establishing our party's reputation as champion of the right of those with minority views to be heard. I thought that was a really interesting thing to include because I don't necessarily agree that that is our like or should be our party's reputation for minority views to be aired. Yeah, I mean, there are fundamental things that this party is about and, um, you know, you wouldn't say that there's a right for climate deniers to have their view yeah. in the Greens or, or people with racist views. Like, you know, if they're so fundamentally against the position of the party, this isn't the party for you. Um, and I think that it is good that, we can discuss all sorts of things in the party and um, members can have their um, their views being adopted into policy that changes how we do things uh, across the country uh, when we reach consensus decision-making, but that's not what this is. Yeah. Well, and I, I just, I don't know, I find there's something interesting and I think it kind of goes back to, I guess, what I was alluding to earlier when we were talking about um, appealing to, you know, a mass, a, a very large proportion of the Australian voting populace that I don't think that the party should be deliberately about minority views and just like standing up for a minority. And that I suppose is kind of a fundamental difference about the purpose um, or the mission of the Greens is that there are people who are like, it's just a protest party and, yeah, we're not on the side of ordinary people because ordinary people are stupid and have bad politics. <laughs> and so the purpose of the party is to air these, like, niche views, whereas I'm like, no, I want us to be a, a populist, like a, a party that broadly represents um, the things that ordinary people believe in and need because I want to be helping the, you know, the broadest number of, of people in in society and, like, our policies and what we do as a party should reflect that that's yeah i think that's just like a very fundamental difference in how i see the party to perhaps how these people see the party but of course yeah they're looking for any way to justify this idea that actually what this party about 
is about is about being kind of a dissident voice and airing minority views. Um, I don't think that is the fundamental purpose of the party. It seems to be what they're most obsessed with, but that's not what I, I want to win and improve people's lives. <laughs> um, anyway, the, the preamble goes on. It says the party must practice privately what it preaches publicly. There will always be and should always be disagreement within the party. I don't disagree with that. Um, but differences of opinion regarding policy, strategy, and tactics must be aired openly with no issue declared off limits and all members entitled to exercise their own judgment. I think, first of all, there is, there's an interesting question about whether any issue should be declared off limits. And I think perhaps some people argue that certain issues should be off limits. Like we shouldn't, you know, the party isn't a forum for discussing, you know, the merits of, of white supremacy, for example, or even probably climate denialism, because it's just fundamentally contrary to, uh, yeah, what this party stands for. But but I also think that arguably, like, there's, we don't need necessarily, it's not like we have a rule that's like, those debates are off limits. We have rules that say, if you want to, like, you can discuss what you like, but there will be consequences. And if you act in a way that is directly contrary to the principles of the party or is, you know, which includes whether it's harmful to people within the party or directly contradicts our policies repeatedly and, and publicly and quite deliberately, there will be consequences. And really what these people want is just for there not to be any consequences for that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> just let me say what I want to say, you know. Yeah. I, I, I think some people are lesser than others. That's, that's their position. Yeah. And it's like, okay, is that all you want? You just want to be able to say shitty things? Like what is the point? Why are you, why are you in a party? You know, what is your actual objective here? And again, it goes, I think we've spoken on the podcast before about that difference between, you know, the difference between a um, freedom to, you know, discuss and a freedom from consequences when, when you discuss things. But the, <laughs> the other thing is that the consequences really have been quite mild for these people in terms of the damage that they've done to the party and to trans members of the party and probably trans people without, you know, from outside the party who see this debate about their lives borne out again and again publicly, that it's this myth of cancellation that, you know, fucking conservatives will consistently be like right-wing voices or these certain voices or transphobes of whatever being, uh, being silenced and cancelled. And it's like, then why am I still hearing from you? Because you're still around Yes, most of you are still like you're still in the party. You still have a significant platform. You're in the fucking mainstream media when most Greens members don't have that platform. You're specifically going for elected representatives and councillors, people who have a platform to sign this declaration. Like it's led by those people. You have not been cancelled. There have been very few consequences for your actions. You just don't want to be challenged in any way. <laughs> Anyway, so there, uh, there is a response to this Docklands Declaration. There's an open letter that calls for solidarity with trans members through internal civil disobedience. Do we know, is this like an anonymous open letter or do we know where it's come from? Yes, I wrote this. Oh, I'm sorry. I, didn't even, I literally didn't know that. <laughs> Esther. Okay. Esther it's a, it's wrote an open fun, letter. a fun project for uh, yesterday afternoon. Just in your in your spare time, <laughs> just like defending yours and other people's right to exist within the party, just for fun. Yeah, yeah. Not not really what I'd rather be doing, but um, you know, I'm, I am really just seeing um, the effects of what's been going on on our members, and like this is damaging our movement if they're allowed mm. to keep doing this and they're not getting cancelled no absolutely not like there are that's right there are trans people who have left the party or have disengaged with the party who no longer feel like it's safe for them to be here who maybe would have joined or got more involved but haven't particularly i would imagine in victoria like those are the people who actually bear the consequences but even even up here we mm. hear that there are um you know, potential members who don't join or there has been men uh, members who've left because they feel like um, the party has a transphobia problem. Um, yeah. And it's not universal um, and it is definitely 
highly concentrated within Victoria. Yes, yeah. Yeah, well, we, we'll put um, the link to the open letter in the show notes. I think it's well worth a read. Uh, include, you know, it says what the creators of the declaration are pushing for is a party where they are not told that they can't deny the rights and decency of transgender individuals. This is a dog whistle for fascism, and it's especially concerning in light of recent events where the National Socialist Movement, the neo-Nazi group, supported and protected a transphobic rally in Victoria. Exactly. Like, it is. It is really concerning. Um, and, you know, even the fact that they kind of try to take these back doors by using this dog whistle tactic, by being kind of vague and just talking about it's just about free speech, they don't mention trans people in the declaration or anything like that, that in itself makes it ease, more easy to co-opt this kind of ideals about, you know, unlimited um, free speech and debate on people's right to exist without consequence Uh that can be used, that could be co-opted by the white supremacist, white supremacist movement, for example. Exactly. They're not um, wanting to make the argument that, um, you know, human rights and um, medical science is not on the side of trans people and this should still be up for debate within the party. They're saying any issue should be up to up for debate and that definitely holds the door open for all sorts of views and when you have you know neo-nazis and turfs coming hand in hand uh, i think that's very concerning for like the precedent this sets Mm, yeah yeah the letter so it has a few asks for people to sign uh and it it calls on people on members of the greens to express support for trans rights very openly and call out transphobia and fascist re- rhetoric where and when you see it. It also calls for these kind of civil disobedience um, things that you could do within the party, like refusing to accept people who've signed the declaration as movers of motions, for example, in in branches. I think it'll be interesting to see how those people, you know, the people behind that declaration and that kind of uh, sect within the Greens respond to this and whether they just say that this is further evidence that they're being excluded from the party or they're being, you know, attacked and shut down and and hashtag censored. Um, But again, I think we'll continue to see that they are given quite probably more latitude than they should be given and that, you know, freedom of, of speech and freedom of debate does not mean that you can do that without any fucking consequences. And that's the distinction that they just don't seem to be able to make. Yeah, there, and there is no censorship or cancellation coming from on high. Um, what this letter is calling for is for the grassroots members to take action. And if we mm. think that, you know, people on the grassroots who take civil disobedience against coal trains, you know, to get their voice heard by the government, by big corporations... If we think that's a good thing, then grassroots members of the party um, should also do what they can to have their voice heard to say that, you know, this kind of rhetoric is not acceptable in our party. Mm, Yeah, kind of carrying over those principles. Yes. Well, yeah, you could read the um, open letter and the declaration in the show notes if you're uh, interested, especially if you remember. But I also kind of want to be like, you know, I've resisted talking too much about this on the show before when it has come up, when the Victorian Greens are having their little spats about whether trans people should exist um, or not, et cetera. And like, I don't like giving it a lot of airtime because as I think I've made pretty clear, I think it's a distraction and a waste of time and we should be focusing on building a movement and, and changing people's lives instead. But I also think that it gets to a certain point where, you know, I figured I've wanted to have Esther on and I think it sends a pretty strong message to get uh, a trans member of the party on to tell you that this is fucking, this transphobia is absolute nonsense. And if you want to win, like Esther has shown that we can, (laughs) we can't get caught up in this shit and just, you know, hopefully they, um, they get tired and they give up eventually and there will be and continue to be if we continue to to open our arms and let them in more young people who want to make a difference uh and can actually help us win and grow the movement coming in to replace them uh and you know we don't need them to be honest (laughs) 
That's our one chance to affect right. the long-term housing plan of this country. Uh, if, so of okay, course so we're if, going to push for that. If 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 no, if, if the government digs its heels in, and if you if you just if you can't come to a compromise, how would you feel about the possibility of this leading to a double disillusion? Double disillusion. Double disillusion. Double disillusion. Quick check in on housing as. You know, obviously, it continues to be the the biggest uh, topic of discussion in Australian politics and for most people in their daily lives who are experiencing the impacts of the housing crisis and the rental crisis. And as of this morning, so it's Friday when we're recording this, and Labor have made an announcement in Brisbane that they're going to bring their housing bill back to the House uh, so that it can pass the lower house again where they have got the numbers and it'll go back to the Senate where it has currently stalled, um, where the Greens have said we want to delay the vote until October and we're demanding a national rent freeze, limits on rent uh, increases and $2.5 billion for direct spend for public housing. Um What's interesting about this is that they're like, yeah, we're we're doing this thing, this kind of weird bureaucratic, like you know, technical move. Um, but it's it's certainly not about politics, and it's nothing to do with the fact that this would then give us potentially a trigger for a to ask for a double dissolution to go back to the polls uh, and dissolve the Senate if it fails to pass the Senate again. It's not about that. They continue, they've got all their ministers out this morning talking to media saying some variation of the line. It's not about politics. This is about housing. It's about getting roofs over people's head, which like, I just, do they really think that people are going to buy that? Surely any ordinary person, anyone who knows the context is going to be like, oh, this is obviously about dis- double dissolution. Anyone who doesn't know the context will be like, wait, why would they reintroduce a bill that they already introduced? Yeah, absolutely. The only reason to do that is to put ammunition in the double dissolution cannon. Um, it's <laughs> just it's so obvious. Um, and meanwhile, the Greens have just been saying that, like, you know, we're giving you until October, which gives time for National Cabinet to meet again and discuss these rental proposals and come up mm. with a plan for renters um, across the country. And then we'd be willing to pass your bill. Um, yeah. So, like, the message from the Greens, I think, has been very clear and very straightforward. Yes. Yeah. Whereas that's that's right. I think that is really what has been fascinating to watch about this whole process and the, the debate on the housing bill is that the Greens' message has remained consistent because we're just continuing to fight for renters' rights and public housing, whereas Labor has been kind of all over the place. Like, you know, they'll take one tact and that's not that's not working. They'll take another, that's not working. They'll compromise on this, that they'll go to the states and give them money instead. They'll say, actually, we're going to, okay, we're going to set up this inquiry over here. We're going to do this over here. Now they're saying, oh, we're going to bring it back to the house. We're going to do a double dissolution. No, we're not. You know, it's they're completely all over the place. And I think that that's a reflection of the fact that they are really feeling the heat from a focused and effective Greens campaign for better fucking housing rights. Um, you know, in Victoria, we saw, again, I think this week, that the Victorian government is considering rent controls. That's pretty fucking incredible to see happening there. Um, even the CFMEU, who we've spoken about on the show before, had started joining Greens rallies for against Labor for public housing. CFMEU, a labor-aligned union, comes out this week and calls for a super profits tax to fund housing. This is fucking incredible. This is direct. This is Greens policy. This is tax billionaires to fund public housing, um, and you know that is a massive base. That's a massive player in the labor machine coming out against labor and saying what you're doing is wrong. I think the ACT, uh, the ACT labor conference passed a motion calling on them to support the Greens' demands on housing. The members are contacting the Greens. We've seen Max Chandler Mather saying that Labor members are like, what can I do <laughs> to get the party to stop being shit on this and do better? And yet we've just got this like recalcitrant center or, you know, top level of Labor who runs everything. And as we know, Anthony Albanese has like a personal issue with the Greens and is kind of blowing his fucking party up for it. And it looks like is willing to go totally nuclear and and potentially bring on another election 
because he doesn't like the greens. And like, if that's really what you want to do, it's fucking shocking for the people who are having to deal with the impacts of your shitty housing policy right now. But also if all you care about is politics and you want to do that and you want to see what happens when you send people back to the polls and you've got, you know, a mobilized greens movement ready to take you on again. Let's see. Let's see. Yeah. The double dissolution thing is just so hilarious because obviously the makeup of the Senate is not going to suddenly give Labor more control. Like there is no yeah. like pathway of vote switching in which the Greens are going to be completely out of the balance of power um, unless a bunch of more conservative people who are more likely to support the Liberals get in, like, you know, One Nation and Clive Palmer. Yeah. Um, and what's that going to do for so Labor? It, what, what is the point? Is it just to try to win back Griffith? Like, that's embarrassing <laughs> to call a double it dissolution is over one it seat. Is. Like, yeah. rent-free, Max, rent-free. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, and that's really what it does seem to kind of, yeah, it's, it's they're kind of caught up in, like, an emotional response, it seems, to this. And if I were them, I would be doing something different. But it's almost at this point, it's like, we're just going to keep doing what we are doing. And clearly people, I believe, recognize that and are seeing that the Greens are fighting for renters and fighting for housing and let Labor sort their shit out. Like, we'll see what fucking happens. Who knows? Um, In a couple of weeks' time, the Labor National Conference is being held in Brisbane, it's actually being held in Max's uh, electorate of Griffith at the convention centre, which is quite funny. And the the Greens are organising a rally at that conference. I, I get the sense there's going to be a few rallies at this conference, which is um, a good sign for government in its first term, you know. <laughs> uh, but there's going to be a housing rally on the 19th of August. We'll put the information in the show notes. And if you're going to be around Brisbane, Mansion, I'd encourage you to get along to that rally being held, I think, with with the Greens and the Brisbane Renters Alliance, Rally for Renters and Public Housing. If you're not in, in Brisbane or if you are, but anywhere across the country, though, please don't forget to make a submission on the national inquiry into the rental crisis. I did mine yesterday. I had been putting it off, but I was like, fuck it, I got to get this in. And it was very quick. There's literally only like two or three questions. You just talk about your experience as a renter, um, whether you're currently renting or not, you can do that. And then there's a, a spot where you can say what you think the state and federal governments should be doing to address the rental crisis, which is obviously where, you know, we would say you should, um, that the Commonwealth government should coordinate a national rent freeze followed by a rent cap um, among the states and territories uh, and invest directly in in public housing as well, because I think, you know, that has an impact on the rental market. And then there's a, you can put in anything else that you want to in another, in another field. Uh, I also asked my mum to do a submission. She did a submission. It's super easy. Please do it now before the 4th of August when submissions close. We'll put the link in the show notes. Um, have you done your submission, Esther? No, I haven't yet, but I will be. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. We are both, yes, everyone is doing submissions as soon as the show's almost over. So as soon as it's done, you can already be scrolling down to the notes and clicking that link and just do it really quickly. I'm singing this song for my sister Sinead Concerning the god-awful mess that she made When she told him her truth just as hard as she could Her message profoundly was misunderstood Trusted with guarding our gold And humans in charge of the saving of souls And humans responded all over the world Condemning that bald-headed brave little girl And maybe she's crazy and maybe she ain't But so was Picasso and so were the saints And she's never Impartial to shackles or chains She's too old for breaking and too young to tame 
you so much, Esther, for for coming on the show and filling in for for Tom. Is there anything that you want to plug where people can kind of follow you or your work or anything that you think people should be doing? I'm on social media platforms at Esther A. Vale um, and a website where you can find some more stuff about me as well, esthervale.tv. Sick. Uh, and you can also, of course, follow the podcast at Serious Danger AU on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, and X. Just my <laughs> my favorite uh, platform, not Twitter. It's X now. Uh, very very cool. Good to see how long that one lasts. Uh, like I said, we'll post. We post some cute. We post clips from the show and little photos, stuff that we mention on the show, like that photo of Esther and Libby on election night. We'll put that on the Instagram. Um, for all the info, you can just head to seriousdangerpod.com. You'll also find the link there if you want to help us out to become a patron, subscribe on Patreon. It's just $3 a month and you get access to bonus content like that, that Q&A episode. Um, we did a, a film review, a movie night of The Giants, the film about Bob Brown and also trees. And there's like a shitload, a big back catalog of episodes on there that you get access to when you become a patron. Uh, but if you you know, Cosy lives. Uh, if you don't want to become a patron, that is totally fine. The other way that you can help us out is by reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review or wherever you're listening now. That helps us get the word out. I think that that's it. I think we can say goodbye. Are you door knocking this weekend, Esther? No, I'm not. I'm uh, going to be going to Canberra for the first time. Wait, really? Heading right into the bubble. Yeah. Oh, shit. Okay, so the worst, from from the best thing to do politically, door knocking, to the absolute worst, going to parliament. Um, <laughs> we respect it. All right, cool. Thanks again for coming on the show. And everyone, Tom, I think, will be back next week. I'm pretty, yeah, Tom will be back next week. He's still in Europe, but he's apparently going to make the time zones work. We're going to record an episode. It'll be fun. We'll see you all then. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. This is a serious danger, Australia.